Let's move on to our, our third case. You start on your Saturday night overnight shift, and your first patient is one of your regular alcoholic street people found down on the street, unable to walk. His friend was worried because he said he complained of abdominal pain despite drinking a whole lot of moonshine, so he called 911. The paramedics noted that he appeared drunk, but had normal vital signs and oxygenation saturation. After transport to the hospital, he complained of worsening abdominal pain. At that time, his blood pressure was 120 over 70, heart rate of 82, temp at 35.8, and respiratory rate of 22, with an oxygen saturation of 99% on room air. A few hours later, in your ED, his GCS score fell to 6, and his respiratory rate increased to 32. There were no focal neurologic signs, and the physical examination was otherwise unremarkable. A rapid sequence intubation was performed with propofol and sucks. This is a good spot to talk about the elements of the coma cocktail. So speaking of the coma cocktail, whether you use the mnemonic don't, dextrose, oxygen, naloxone, thymine, things have evolved, right? Previously, flumazenil was in that, and that's kind of changed. I think dextrose highlights the importance in comatose patients to check sugar as an an additional vital. I don't give dextrose to people who aren't hypoglycemic. I think with naloxone or Narcan, think about opioid overdoses. I think that if someone is acting like they're on an opioid, I'll think about using it. Where you have caution is often people will take a combination of overdoses or a combination of ingestions. So their pupils might not be the only clue. Someone who might have something sympathomimetic on board prior and an opioid, you might not have pinpoint pupils. Where I'd rely on more is probably the low rest rate. With regards to the coma patient though, if someone is profoundly comatose, I'm not sure and I think you need to think that that 0.4 or 0.2 milligram starting dose is not going to wake a completely comatose patient. You're probably going to require higher dose, especially if these are people who are on medications like methadone or fentanyl where higher doses of Narcan are required. With regards to thymine, I think is what I ate for breakfast. Sometimes I give it, sometimes I don't, but I'm certainly not bought into the dogma that exists with thymine before glucose. So the standard dosing of naloxone is you start with about 0.4 milligrams, you can go up to one milligram, up to two milligrams. You mentioned in the comatose patient, you might want to start with a higher dose than 0.4 milligrams. Dr. Steinhardt, you've probably treated hundreds of opiate overdoses. Do you have any pearls about dosing naloxone, when to give it, how to give it? I, I don't mean to be a, a devil's advocate, but why are you giving the Narcan? Is it just to satisfy yourself that, hey, this patient has an opiate on board? But as alluded by Dr. Carr, one, many of these have coexisting substance abuse on board, so you, you may you know, neutralize the opiate effect, but then now you got the ecstasy to deal with and they're a raging lunatic and tearing up your place. So, so typically, in of itself, we, we just support the intoxicated patient, be it opiate or otherwise, if they need intubation and ventilation and sustain the individual until the substance wears off. The problem, of course, you have to ask yourself is, one, the mixed overdose and dealing now with a very agitated, potentially very agitated patient. And secondly, withdrawal, right? So again, my clientele are more in long-term opiate use, heroin, 
Percocet, you name it, use methadone. And you can, if you give a too big a dose, put them into full withdrawal. And that can be a handful for certainly the patient and for the staff. I mean, one of the symptoms is confusion but and signs, but the other is, you know, GI upset. So you got someone vomiting, screaming in myalgic pain and pooping out, you know, three or four times in an hour. And the nurses are looking at you saying, why did you get us into this state with this patient? So I would start small to get them out of the respiratory difficulty, but maybe not all the way to full reversal of their comatose state. You had mentioned that you'll support the patient and intubate them if necessary. I mean, I think one of the nice things about Narcan is it can often avoid having to intubate the patient. It's not infrequent that you re do reverse the patient for the time being with a very long-acting opiate on board, like methadone. And then what do you do? The patient wants to sign out AMA. You know your Narcan could work maybe for 30, 35 minutes, but they got a drug on board that's going to last for 30 hours. So now, again, you, you have to be anticipate this ethical dilemma and what are you going to do? You're going to physically restrain the patient and sign all the forms to keep an eye on, on them. This is real. These are real issues that you have to deal with when you elect to use Narcan. Okay. That brings up the point of using Narcan boluses versus using a Narcan drip. Let's say you have a patient whose respiratory rates in the boots, you give them a bit of Narcan, they wake up enough, just however much you want them to wake up. You know that it's going to last for half an hour or so, maybe an hour at the most, and then they're going to drift back down again rather than having to come back and give them boluses. You know, some people advocate giving IV Narcan drip. Can you just go over how you would dose that? Typically, what I would do is two-thirds of the converting dose. So if you can get someone to convert at four milligrams, and, and it sounds like Dr. Steiner and I have different definitions of what conversion is, but to a level that we're both happy with, that's the, the desired effect. Two-thirds of that would be your hourly dose. So if you get someone at four, give them, you know, three an hour or something like that. That's how I'd run it. Let's get back to the case. The lab results come back and they show normal electrolytes and glucose. The serum osmolarity is 480 and the anion gap is 15 with an osmolar gap of 120. The initial blood ethanol concentration is 25 and the lipase is sky high. Dr. Steinhardt, so you've got your drunk patient with a high osmolar gap and a near normal anion gap with an ethanol level of only 25. What are your thoughts at this point? There are only a finite number of substances that would cause an increased osmolal gap in a patient who presents this way. To review, blood has solutes in it and is osmolally active. And there are certain extrinsic substances that increase the osmolality of the blood and we can test for them. So in this situation, this patient has one or more of these osmolally active agents on board. The classic ones are, in, in addition to ethanol, are uh, methanol or ethylene glycol, 
but can also include isopropyl or rubbing alcohol, mannitol, uh, propylene glycol, and glycerol, and ketones. So each of these substances have a unit osmolal power, and in SI units, it's really easy for ethanol. It contributes to one osmolal unit per milliliter, millimole per liter of substrate. So this patient has 25 units on board and would contribute 25 units to the osmolal gap. However, the gap far exceeds that. It's at 120 calculated osmolal gap. And so, and therefore, one of the other substances mentioned are in addition on board. So it's a great hint, a great test when it's positive. Okay. So this patient was seen at St. Mike's where toxic alcohol levels can come back pretty quickly within a few hours. And this is unlike most hospitals where toxic alcohols need to be sent out to a poison control center and sometimes take a day or two to come back. This patient's methanol came back and it was super high. So just to refresh your memory about methanol, it's a colorless liquid that's found in things like windshield washer fluid, model airplane fluid, camp stove fuel, and paint thinner. It's metabolized to formaldehyde and then formic acid, which basically kills retinal and optic nerve cells, which leads to the vision deficits, which are commonly described as the snowstorm vision and eventually blindness if it's left untreated. These patients can also complain of light flashes, blurring and dimness, as well as abdominal pain like this patient, which can sometimes be due to pancreatitis, which is something you need to think about as well in these kinds of patients. The lethal dose is about one gram per kilogram. However, fatalities have been reported with doses as low as 30 cc's of methanol or about 100 cc's of windshield wiper fluid. Some of us, depending on where we work, see many, many inebriated alcoholics in our EDs. When should we go beyond the usual fluids and vitamins and observation for these patients and suspect a toxic alcohol ingestion? So for your average drunk guy who comes into St. Mike's, they're inebriated. You know, what kind of workups do you normally do on these patients and what helps you decide whether there might be something else going on besides their usual ethanol intoxication? That's a good question. And I would say that in this day and age, in Canadian inner city centers, the hardcore alcoholic knows to stay away from toxic alcohols. You mentioned methanol. There's also ethylene glycol, uh, typically in, uh, in radiator antifreeze, uh, but uh, in other substances. So if, if they imbibe these toxic alcohols, it's either by mistake so they find a container that has some fluid that they think is alcohol and, and they just chug it thinking they're going to get a high from it or they're trying to harm themselves. And I think it's natural selection. I think those that did ingest toxic alcohols for a high are, are now not with us any longer. So I think the word is out and, and the common inner city quote, street person knows to stay away from that. It's the other individuals, the suicide patients, the young kid who takes it in an occult fashion that you have to be concerned about or the accidental ingestion. So that said, what, you know, really perks my head up, I think far and away, 
recognition of Kuzmal breathing as they roll in on the stretcher. It's a slam dunk. If no one's ever seen this kind of presentation, I would remind you of the DKA patient, much more common kind of Kuzmal presentation for everyone. Everyone's seen DKA pretty well, or they're just blowing and huffing and puffing. Well, these alcoholics are, and other patients are, are Kuzmaling because of the underlying metabolic acidosis when it exists. The, the caveat is early on, they may be only inebriated with the parent compound, having not been degraded to the toxic metabolites yet. And, and the anion gap metabolic acidosis isn't present yet. And or they may have ethanol on board that competes actively with the degradation process and, and that isn't about to happen at the time being. So Kuzmal breathing off the bat, big red flag, really easy to, to pick out once you've seen it. Yeah, I mean, speaking to the Kuzmals, when I see a respirate that's elevated in a non-asthmatic you better be thinking metabolic acidosis. And these people can be profoundly acidotic. When the nurse doesn't write 12, 14, or 16, and it's 20 or 24 or 28, you know something's going on. They deserve your attention, your respect. I think respirates are very telling vital because it, it's like a poor man or poor woman's ABG. So we all know that patients with methanol poisoning typically have high osmolar gap and a high anion gap. Why in this patient did he have an elevated osmolar gap, but a pretty much at least near normal anion gap? As I alluded to, most likely because they, they are early on in, the, in their course of the syndrome, and it is only the parent toxic alcohol compound that is osmotically active, and it is only the degradation products that are toxic contributing to the acid-base disturbance. So it's a spectrum of when they present solely at the beginning, only the osmolality and the gap will be high. In the middle of the process, you'll have both high, and later, uh, late presentation, you'll only have the acidosis and not the osmolality high. I think you have to kind of understand the osmolar gap and what those numbers are and what's normal. So typically people will say the normal osmolar gap is negative two plus or minus six, and that would be one standard deviation. So if you take two standard deviations, it tells us that 95% of the population has a normal osmolar gap from minus 14 to 10. So if you're one of those people with a baseline of minus 14, you have to have a lot of external osmols to have a gap. So I think what this tells us is when you see someone whose osmolar gap is 100, like this patient, when you account for his alcohol, you know that something seriously is up, okay? When you see it as 10, 12, it's hard to say because you don't know what someone's baseline, but it's profoundly abnormal osmolar gap that is not accounted for by run-of-the-mill serum alcohol is incredibly frightening, especially when they start to have clinical sequelae suggestive of a toxic or volatile alcohol. So the other caveat for those listeners who, who may be working outside of North America is, as Dr. Carr mentioned, the volatility of these alcohols and the measurement of the osmolality. There's two ways to measure 
this in the lab, and, and this has to do with the solute and the osmolality, the power in the solution, and how they affect freezing point or boiling point as a determination. That's how they measure osmolality. And as a, and in days and years past, in North America, there were two ways to do it, including the boiling point determination. So obviously, if you have volatile substances such as toxic alcohols, you will boil off the alcohol and be left with an, a normal serum and therefore have a normal osmolal gap. So they realize that when they're testing for toxic alcohols, these false normal values, and now the convention in certainly North America is throughout all the hospital labs in North America to only practice freezing point determination. But that may not be true in every hospital and behooves the clinician to, to clarify this. Or if you're going to use this test, you're going to get a, an awful lot of wrong results if you're using boiling point determination. That must be changed. I, I know this stuff because I've seen at least a half dozen cases sent in to our through our emerge in times past with acidosis NYD or and or coma NYD and or renal failure NID where they've done osmolal gaps being normal at the index hospital and they're just shaking their head what in the world's going on and when you backtrack into the lab they've done boiling point determinations and missed the boat. So many of these patients with toxic alcohol ingestions end up having a CT to rule out other causes of altered mental status. What would you expect to find on the CT of a patient with methanol poisoning? Historically, it's talked about basal ganglia infarcts or ischemia or hemorrhage, putamen, necrosis. At the end of the day, these are going to be subtle findings that both Dr. Steiner and I will miss. I think that you have laboratory abnormalities that will help guide you with this diagnosis. This will not be a CT diagnosis. Okay. I mean, if you have a patient that you have no idea what's going on and your radiologist calls you and says they have bilateral putamen necrosis, then maybe that might be helpful. But generally you're saying that the CT is not really, a, it's not a slam dunk in methanol poisoning. There's all kinds of other things that are going on that are going to so, tip you I off. I mean, to put it in some framework, if these patients were to survive, they often have Parkinson-like syndrome and other mental aberrations that can be attributed to putamen lesions as with idiopathic Parkinson uh, presentation. So there's some, if you could try and remember that, maybe that'll help you when the radiologist calls down, hey, there's putamen lesions on this CT. Okay. So let's go back to the case now. Fomepazole treatment was begun in the emergency department he received an empiric loading dose of 1,200 milligrams IV with IV fluids, and IV folic acid was given as well. What are the advantages to fomepazole over ethanol in the treatment of methanol poisoning? You've got the choice of either treating with ethanol or with fomepazole if you've got it. What's the advantage of fomepazole over ethanol? So I, I think as you allude to, any suspicion of a toxic alcohol, start treating. 
start treating. Don't wait for the definitive test that could be hours away. And I would also hark on the fact that ethylene glycol tests are not routinely done when you order toxic alcohols. It's a big, kind of cumbersome, long, difficult test, and and the tech will not do it, certainly where I practice, unless you specifically phone up and order for it. So you may get no toxic alcohols back, but you have to be sure that they do the ethylene glycol test if you are suspicious. So start start treating with whatever you got. I think ethanol means you have to look at the formula. You have to get 10% solution. If you're going to go intravenously, you don't have to. but And you're going to end up working with your pharmacist and creating this mixture. And you're going to get an inebriated patient. If they weren't inebriated before, they will be inebriated. Because you've got to get fairly high blood levels to block the alcohol dehydrogenase and prevent the toxic alcohol from being degraded. You can go orally if you have to. And in my facility, you just walk into the waiting room and round up all the Mickeys and start giving it. Uh, And if you work in a squeaky clean emergency department, you, you can use rubbing alcohol. It does block the alcohol dehydrogenase and it has much greater, greater affinity than either of the toxic alcohols. Again, you're going to have to deal with the added inebriation that results from ethanol versus a simple injection, no big formula to calculate with fomepazole. It is typically only stocked in regional centers, so you have to go and get it because it's very expensive to use. It's just a balance of cost versus outcome. If the visual symptoms, which are classic in methanol poisoner, appear, you've probably missed a lot of the boat. So you really want to get this person, especially in an early presenter, treated, especially if they don't have the protective effect of a co-ingestion with alcohol on board. So the general indications, the textbook indication for fomepazole are methanol levels greater than 20. If there's a strong suspicion of methanol ingestion plus an arterial pH of less than 7.3, serum bicarb less than 20, serum osmolality gap of more than 10. What's your take on sort of the textbook indications for fomepazole? What you quote is is factual, but in Canada, 20 milligram per deciliter, a lot of the new docs will not understand what that is. So the conversion factors for ethylene glycol is four and then for methanol is about eight. So that's to convert into the SI units that we will receive and, and go by those values. I think the key is to get these patients to hemodialysis as soon as possible and, and really you're temporizing by giving the adjuvant therapies of blocking the degradation, using bicarb to get a, as close to, as you can to a physiological pH using the adjuvant vitamins to facilitate small redirection to benign byproducts, you got to get them to the hemodialysis center and you got to talk to your consultant soon. Dr. Sonner, you had mentioned some additional vitamins in, in addition to fomepazole for treating the methanol toxic patient. Can you just go over what else you might give besides the fomepazole? As with any severe acidosis state, you, you want to treat the underlying cause, but you also think of replenishing bicarb. It's not uncommon to have bicarbs of two or three 
with pH levels of 6.8, 6.9 in these presentations, and you want to give massive amounts or think of giving massive amounts of bicarbonate to try and at least for a temporary state, try and get uh, a normal acid base uh, status. This is thought to help prevent or reverse cardiovascular collapse that will ultimately kill these patients and the brain and specifically optic lesions that occur are compounded in an acidotic state so you could help lessen these uh, permanent outcomes with bicarb and then as I alluded to with methanol you can facilitate some benign byproducts by giving folate and with ethylene glycol it'll act on the glycolic acid by using thiamine and pyridoxine to facilitate benign byproducts. And, of course, the help of your friendly nephrologist, because I think that anytime you have either an acidotic patient, a high osmolar GAB, someone who has retinal findings or visual concerns, you need to speak to not only a toxicologist, but you got to have someone helping you out for starting the dialysis process or thinking about it, whether they need indications for dialysis in the textbook or where they're going down that pathway, you have to get nephrology involved. That's nephrology, toxicology very early. For those listeners who are going to be writing exams, the indications for dialysis and methanol poisoning are a significant metabolic acidosis, but there's no real number cut off there. Any ocular finding a serum level of over 20 milligrams per deciliter of methanol or a history of ingesting more than 30 milliliters of methanol. That would be like 100 milliliters of windshield wiper fluid, for example. And I think the same holds true for ethylene glycol, but for not so common ocular findings, much more common flank pain and renal findings with I think anytime you get a patient with altered level of consciousness and you see massive crystal urea, you got to think ethylene glycol poisoning. Reviewing a few highlights here of methanol poisoning. First, the causes of a high osmolal gap can be remembered by the mnemonic ME-DIE, M-E-D-I-E. M stands for methanol, E stands for ethylene glycol, D stands for diuretics, osmotic diuretics in particular, like mannitol, I stands for isopropyl alcohol, and E stands for ethanol. In terms of some of the pitfalls for methanol poisoning, there's a few things you should remember. First, don't assume that a normal anion gap or osmolal gap rules out toxic alcohol poisoning. In the early presenter, they might have a high osmol gap, but a normal anion gap. And in the late presenter, they tend to have a high anion gap, but a normal osmol gap. The second pitfall has to do with your frequent flyer alcoholic. Don't assume that it's only alcohol that they've ingested. You need to suspect toxic alcohol ingestion if the patient appears drunk but with a low ethanol level, or is Kuzmol breathing, or has vision changes, or abdominal pain, or isn't clinically improving. The third pitfall is to assume that a small amount of windshield water fluid will not be toxic. Remember that as little as a few milliliters of methanol can be highly toxic. 
The last thing to remember is do not wait for the toxic alcohol level to come back in order to initiate your treatment with fomepazole or ethanol and initiating dialysis. Next is the final case of our Killer Coma Cases episode. Let's go on to our fourth case. This is a 20-year-old student who arrives in your ED by car with her friends on a Saturday night after being at a party. Her friends admit that they all took ecstasy from the same batch. The friends report that she became ataxic and then collapsed onto a couch, shaking. On arrival in the ED, her vital signs were blood pressure of 135 on 70, heart rate of 130, respiratory rate of 32, and a temp of 39.8. She appeared confused and diaphoretic. Eye exam reveals dilated pupils, which were sluggish to react. Her motor exam revealed marked hyperactivity and an unusual quivering in her jaw. She was hyperreflexic, but there were no focal neurologic findings. In her pocket, you find a bottle of Tylenol cold. Dr. Carr, what would your differential be at this point in the case? So you've got a patient who's febrile, has got these motor signs, respiratory rate of 32, and you know that she took ecstasy. It's fantastic that you know she took ecstasy. Most people don't tell you what they took. Most people's friends don't tell you what they took. And it's wonderful that she had cooperative friends with her at the party. It kind of doesn't highlight how important it is for you to play detective. And for you to, especially in the teenager group, to say it's imperative that we know what she took. We're not here to judge you. We're here to help you. And you really got that information. Now you present this case with information of someone who's taken ecstasy. They have autonomic instability. They have fever. The things that come to mind initially would be the common things. You have someone who took an amphetamine. You think about a sympathomimetic toxidrome, someone who's fast and hypertensive and febrile and super, super wet and with big pupils. The other classic toxidrome would be the anticholinergic toxidrome, although she's not endorsing a drug from that class, but that's kind of that Alice in Wonderland toxidrome where they're mad as a hatter, red as a beet, and what really distinguishes them from a sympathetic is they're dry as a bone. So these people are warm and hot, but they're not wet and flush like a sympathomimetic. Given the clue that you gave us with regards to her neurologic exam and some of the drugs you take, I think one has to strongly consider the diagnosis of a serotonin syndrome. One has to consider diagnosis on a spectrum. And I like to think of the next three drugs on a spectrum, or they're similar. And these are neuroleptic malignant syndrome, serotonin syndrome, and malignant hyperthermia. What's great about them is they often involve drugs that are very different. So clearly malignant hyperthermia is not something we're going to see on the street. It's going to be someone who's just had an anesthetic. But when you think about NMS and serotonin syndrome, it's going to be about getting that story of what drugs they're on and are there any interactions with other drugs they might have taken recently in addition. Continuing the case, the lab work comes back with an abnormal sodium of 117, a white blood cell count of 19, a CK of 890, and a lactate of 5. The talk screen for alcohol salicylates acetaminophen, barbiturates, benzos, and tricyclic antidepressants were negative. Her talk screen was positive for methamphetamine. The ECG showed sinus tachycardia and the CT head was normal. 
there was no focus of infection that could be found. We've talked about some of the markers of this person's differential that tend to be toxic-based. You still obviously have to think about endocrinopathies, sepsis, infection, other causes of hyperthermia being exertional and whatnot. When we've ruled out some of those causes, it's probably going to be because of some collateral history. But often these diagnoses are based on excluding other very serious causes of fever. It is very important that you get a history of what's going on with the medications. When you think about neuroleptic malignant syndrome, these are not people who took an overdose of Haldol or Olanzapine. These are people who have delayed effects maybe five days or something later after starting a new drug. It's not in the setting of an overdose. With a situation like serotonin syndrome, it can occur in people to mild forms who just take, a, let's say, an SSRI overdose. But it often tends to be a combination of drugs, be it recreational, be it herbal, be it other non-commonly associated serotonin analogs that will, in combination with, let's say, an SSRI, potentiate a serotonin syndrome. What's interesting about serotonin syndrome is it happens quite quick. So it's, I'm on an SSRI and I took something else and then boom, within two, six hours, I start to have the syndrome. So I think you got to do a good exam and you got to take a really good drug history. And I think it could also be because of the long half-life of SSRIs, it could have been that you were on an SSRI in the last days to several days and then took a precipitating agent and got into serotonin syndrome because of the long half-life of most of these drugs. And that goes to the point of when you're switching from one SSRI to the other, it's prudent to have a necessary washout. And if, if drugs are not taken properly or washed out properly, that sort of overlap is when you can have a serotonin syndrome be potentiated. So I think whenever you have the fever, the autonomic instability, and the hallmark here, you have clonus, this is a serotonin syndrome. I think that would be very high on your list, especially given the methamphetamine use. Ecstasy use, in fact, is probably the number one precipitant of serotonin syndrome that we see in the province, in the greater Toronto area. So ecstasy use, it behooves one to wonder if she's on another drug that might, in interaction with ecstasy, like an SSRI, which are so commonly prescribed, you really have to think about a serotonin syndrome in this person. In the next little section, Dr. Steinhardt's going to talk a little bit about why some of these patients present with severe hyponatremia and how that complicates the picture. And with regards to the sodium value, we see this typically, these 24-hour, 36-hour rave parties that go on, and the guests are, are quite savvy now. They know that they're going to be taking drugs and uppers, and they know they're going to be in this hot, kind of crowded environment for hours and hours and hours and they know to stay hydrated now because early on when rays occurred people would get really dehydrated and end up in the hospital so they now know to stay hydrated unfortunately they don't know that water alone is not good for people who lose salt and all these other substances so we've seen catastrophic cases come in with profound hyponatremia from dilutional causes and deaths resulting from uh, hyponatremia from, quote, water intoxication. 
This is another complexity to uh, the presentation of these kind of patients. Dr. Steinhardt's now going to tell us about a case that really brings home the point of why we need to look out for these medications that can interact to cause serotonin syndrome. And there's a, a very famous case that every house staff member should realize because it, it affects their on-call schedule. So what is Dr. Steinhardt talking about? This syndrome came to light in the, I think it would have been 20 years ago now, a famous case, Libby Zion, who in New York City presented to a teaching hospital with gastroenteritis being on an SSRI. And it was on a Sunday evening, the house staff covering internal medicine had already been on from Friday evening and the intern admitted the patient and then gave the patient Demerol. And shortly thereafter, Libby Zion started to get into cardiovascular collapse. The junior on call kept calling the senior throughout the night who was finally in bed after being up for 48 plus hours and saying, we'll see her in the morning. She's just got gastro give her some more pain management and give her some fluids. And of course, when morning came around, Libby Zion was deceased. Uh, They had precipitated a serotonin syndrome. So what does all this have to do? The the father, to his credit, pushed for a state investigation that then examined the on-call schedule of medical house staff in New York. This then went to formal recommendations passed by New York State Assembly limiting the on-call schedule of house staff because a major factor was thought to be the fatigue of being on call for so long, having overlooked the syndrome. And this legislation then mushroomed and expanded to all of North America and the Western world, such as it is. So I think house staff should remember this case if for no other reason than they're somewhat conservative on call schedules compared to years past. It's another plug for not using Demerol for your migraine and renal colic patients. <laughs> I think the key is that you have to know drug interactions. And it's amazing what people are on these days that we don't think about serotonin syndrome. It's what? amazing what I have gotten away with because, as you say, the prevalence of antidepressant which is the you know, the category of SSRIs and MAO inhibitors to much less extent these days is amazing. The prevalence of these drugs in the general population who present with situations where you commonly give agents like Demerol, fentanyl, Maxaran, migraine medication, whatever that, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that can potentially precipitate a serotonin syndrome. And it's a Truly amazing how I've gotten away with avoiding this, but we have to be more cognizant. Dr. Steinhardt's list is incredibly important to know. I think that pain medications, whether it's fentanyl or Demerol or Tramadol, antidepressants, whether it's in the SSRI class, the SNRI class, the MAOI inhibitors, the TCAs, migraine meds, the triptan drugs, which are precursors, also weight loss drugs, Drugs of abuse, amphetamines, which are the number one precipitant of serotonin syndrome in the, in the greater Toronto area. But also you have to think about drugs that have interactions that increase the levels of serotonin, classically being linazolid, which is an antibiotic, and other cancer drugs, 
such as antiemetics we might use like Zofran or Chytrolon, Dancitron or Gravenesitron. That, so this list is exhaustive. Interactions are endless and patients with pain syndromes and depression coexist so frequently that we really have to be on the lookout for serotonin syndrome. This patient actually did have a diagnosis of serotonin syndrome. Was there any medication in this case that could have precipitated the serotonin syndrome in her? You know, she did take ecstasy with all of her friends from the same batch of drugs and none of her other friends got serotonin syndrome. Why in this case did she get to serotonin syndrome? So I think in her case, what separates her from her friends is that she was taking Tylenol cold. And these are often with dexamethorphan, which would be a serotonin precursor. And in combination with her methamphetamine, her ecstasy use would potentiate a serotonin syndrome. So dexamethorphan and a whole long list of medications that we give in the emergency department can all potentiate serotonin syndrome in the right setting if the patient's on an SSRI or if they're, in this case, taking uh, something like ecstasy. So in terms of serotonin syndrome, can you just review for us any quick way of remembering the features of serotonin syndrome? If you're one of these guys who likes mnemonics, the mnemonic shivers is something that has been described. I'll go over that with you. Shiver, S stands for shivering which is pretty unique to serotonin syndromes. The H stands for hyperreflexia. And this you kind of see really in terms of myoclonus. And it distinguishes between serotonin syndrome and neuroleptic malignant syndrome, which has a lead pipe rigidity. And that's one of the major differences between those two syndromes. When you think about the eye, increased temperature, although this is with other things, Increased temperature in the right setting you have to be concerned about. V is for vital sign instability. We've talked about the hypertension, the tachypnea, the tachycardia. E is for encephalopathy, but more just think about mental status changes. R is for restlessness, this incoordination they get. And S is for sweating, which is that excessive serotonin. I think the right symptoms, the right combination of meds, think about serotonin syndrome. So you've got your patient with serotonin syndrome. The antidote ciproheptadine has sometimes been used in these cases. In this case, would you use ciproheptadine? It's a consideration. I think when you think about serotonin syndrome, you have to break down its components of treatment. When you think about the high temperature, you think about cooling methods, ice packs and whatnot. When you think about a medication to reverse some of the serotonergic symptoms, there have historically been a lot of drugs attempted for this. Probably the easiest and probably drugs we're almost safe and comfortable using would be used benzodiazepines. So for mild to moderate serotonin syndrome, where using a benzodiazepine like lorazepam or diazepam would probably be a good start. When people have moderate to severe cases of serotonin syndrome, where they have major alterations in their mental status and alterations in their autonomic nervous system, I think one needs to think about other options. Historically, people have tried things like chlorpromazine, olanzapine has been suggested, and more recently, ciproheptadine, which is an anti-serotonergic agent. One pitfall you have to think about it with ciproheptadine is that it is given orally. So if you're going to give these people charcoal, ciproheptadine won't work because the charcoal will absorb a lot of the drug, and therefore an IV medication like olanzapine or chlorpromazine 
might be a better option. I think the key with this is many of us don't have a lot of experience using this drug. And whether this drug is more beneficial towards just benzos or a combination of something else, you really want to get the help of a toxicologist. I think knowledge of that ciproheptadine is super important, but dosing it and using it properly is through the advice of a medical toxicologist. And just to reiterate what was already said, there, there is considerable overlap with this syndrome and neuroleptic malignant syndrome. The hallmark differentiating points are the rapidity of onset with serotonin uh, syndrome and the twitching in the myoclonus that you get versus the rigidity and the gradual onset you get with neuroleptic malignant syndrome. But when we mention treatment and chlorpromazine, you don't want to give chlorpromazine to someone with neuroleptic malignant syndrome, right? So you've got to be damn sure that you're dealing with serotonin syndrome if you're going to go with a phenothiazine. Let's do a review here of serotonin syndrome. Patients with serotonin syndrome have too much serotonin in their brains, but this isn't necessarily from a massive ingestion of serotonin-containing medication. In fact, it's usually caused by the combination of medications in their usual dosages, classically the SSRI plus an MAO inhibitor, but there's a whole long list of other medications that Dr. Steinhardt and Dr. Carr reviewed for us that can trigger this. Patients with serotonin syndrome present with varying degrees of neuromuscular manifestations like tremor, rigidity, and nystagmus. They present with neurobehavioral manifestations like confusion, agitation, and seizures, and autonomic nervous system dysfunction like diaphoresis, hyperthermia, and tachycardia. They don't all present so dramatically. In fact, typically milder cases of serotonin syndrome are much more common. If you like mnemonics, shivers is good to remember the features of serotonin syndrome, with the S standing for shivering, H standing for hyperreflexia, I standing for increased temperature, V standing for vital sign instability, E standing for encephalopathy, R standing for restlessness, and S standing for sweating. Treatment of serotonin syndrome is supportive with external cooling, consideration of cryoheptadine in consultation with your toxicologist, and consideration of IV pheothiazines as long as you're absolutely sure they don't have neuroleptic malignant syndrome. Next, Dr. Steinhardt's going to review for us the differential diagnosis of hypothermia and altered mental status. We've seen two cases on this episode of patients that are hyperthermic with the meningitis case and the serotonin syndrome case. Dr. Steinhardt, can you review for us what the differential diagnosis that you think about is for patients who are in a coma or altered that are hypothermic. So patients who come in altered with a temp of 33, 32. How do you approach that kind of patient? Well, I, I would reiterate the differential that we talked about with hyperthermic. It still holds true. You could certainly have sepsis with a normal or low body core temperature. One also obviously has to think of ambient environmental exposure as a primary problem that then secondarily causes cognitive disorder. Anyone with a core temperature of 32 is not going to be too sparky. Uh, but there are, in particular, in addition to what we've already talked about, a couple of hallmark endocrinopathies that we must consider, and, and that would be hypothyroidism and or hypoadrenalism. So we all know the thyroid excretes thyroxine, which is a 
basic substrate for caloric function and keeping homeostasis for whatever reason, usually idiopathic, autoimmune, the thyroid over days to weeks to months deteriorates and one gets into a hypothyroid state and the hallmark is hypothermia, usually presenting in the winter months, usually with a concurrent insult like sepsis. So the corollary being a hypothyroid patient with a normal temperature is thought to have an infection going on because they are otherwise hypothermic. And less commonly, but that goes along with the autoimmune disorder typically that occurs with hypothyroidism is hypoadrenalism. Uh, again, cortisol is a necessary substrate for caloric activity and homeostasis and thermal regulation. And one would want to be aware and rule out those two causes in amongst all the other causes that we have already discussed for hyperthermia. So those are our four killer coma cases of the found down patient. Dr. Carr is now going to give us six key pearls for the found down patient or the patient found in coma. When you think about the patient found down, in summary, there are a lot of places where we can make errors. And this is how I think of it. There are six important things that you need to do. Firstly, don't assume it's alcohol. It's very dangerous to think that every alcoholic that their alcohol is the cause of their pain, their alcohol is the cause of their altered mental status. There are other things that go on. These people are at high risk for many other high risk behaviors and many disease processes. Don't assume it's alcohol. Examine the patient thoroughly. These are the times to go through the neuro exam prudently. This is not the time to just say, do a CT, because the CT equals a neuro exam. Go through the steps, Medical student neuro exam when you have to. Full neuro exam. Consider C-spine injuries. Think about the person found down at the bottom of the stairs and think about immobilizing their C-spine. I'm not talking about immobilizing people who are found in a chair slumped over, but definitely someone who there might be potential of trauma. Aggressive airway management. Don't let someone with a GCS 4, 5, well, I don't know. Think about intubating those people early. When we think about intubation, think about avoiding sucks in the patient who's been found down for quite some time. Neuroimaging. Don't delay advanced neuroimaging. If you one day see that locked-in syndrome, that top of the basilar artery syndrome, that pontine infarct that's not seen on CT, if you have nothing to explain their altered mental status, get advanced neuroimaging. After your thorough exam, think about doing a CTA or an MRA, whatever's more available in your center, because there's modalities of therapy that are very time sensitive. Lastly, you have to do a thorough approach to recognize a toxidrome. Always do good skin exams, always do good pupil exams, and to find out whether this person has a toxidrome. When I think about these patients, these are amongst the sickest patients we see. The differential is endless. 
anything can be there. If I think it's infectious, it's ceftriaxone, it's vancomycin, maybe it's acyclovir, and maybe it's DEX2. If I think it's non-convulsive status, it's getting a benzo before my EEG. If I think they have increased intracranial pressure, I'm, you know, maybe they're cushing, I'm getting early neuroimaging and thinking about drugs like mannitol to reduce their pressure. If I think it's toxicologic, I'm thinking about naloxone, I'm thinking about specific antidotes, and I'm thinking about getting the help from poison control. And lastly, if it's a psychiatric cause of a coma, I'm thinking about ways to do it that are humane to figure out what the cause of their coma is without breaking every rib in their body by sternal rubbing them. Last month, we launched our best case ever series for which we got some amazing feedback. And this month, we've got our second best case ever. This one's by Dr. Steinhardt in a patient found down. Dr. Steinhardt, you've had 30 plus years of experience in the emergency department. This is our second best case ever in the best case ever series. Let her rip. Let us know what your best case ever is. Well, there are too many to discuss in three or four hours, but... <laughs> With related to found down, again, there are several memorable cases, but I think the one I'd like to talk about is the found down in shock and touch on the approach to the found down patient in shock and shock NYD. So this relates to when I was in the, working in the community and one evening an elderly 70-year-old lady came in, highly functioning, was doing the dishes and collapsed pressure of 70, encephalopathic, not responding, but awake, uh, no focal findings, put on a monitor to sinus tachycardia. So shock NYD, next to upper airway obstruction and a difficult uh, resuscitation. It is my biggest dilemma, someone who's basically succumbing in front of you and you don't immediately know what is going on. So you think of the differential of shock and immediately comes to mind hypovolemic and in that is hemorrhage and didn't see any source of bleeding. There was no GI bleed that was evident. So we rapidly concluded that that wasn't an issue. Cardiogenic, normal sinus rhythm, no chest pain, no ischemic changes on a 12 or a 15 lead EKG. So likely not, but not ruled out. Distributive as one of the causes, so sepsis, certainly a consideration, a little fulminant in presentation, but it can be that these patients compensate and then just go over the deep end and crash to cause their presentation, but no obvious source of infection on a quick survey. And then neurogenic, no, she's moving everything as highly unlikely neurogenic. And anaphylactic, always a possibility. You don't have to have the flushing and cutaneous manifestations for anaphylaxis. But we didn't get a history of chewing on almonds or, or anything else. And then obstructive. And she was satting okay. We were able to get a sat monitor with a readout despite the vasoconstriction. And it was showing good sat. So highly unlikely of a saddle embolus. And... We did a chest x-ray actually looking for pneumothorax or something and got, there was this huge mediastinal mass. In this situation, you do not think twice. It is a thoracic aortic 
aneurysm that is causing the presentation. And retrospectively, we should have tweaked to this. So there are three causes of a medical hypertensive dissection causing death. One is exsanguination, the most precipitous. It can be into any of the spaces, be it pleural, mediastinal, or retroperitoneal as it tracks down. The second is massive aortic insufficiency as it tracks proximally and and carves out the foundation of the aortic valve. So anytime you hear a new AI murmur, as we have diagnosed in the setting of shock NYD, it is dissection, proximal dissection until proved otherwise. She did not have that. And the third common way, and really the only way I think you can impact at all in this very deadly disease and presentation is they can carve out a perforation through the sinus of Valsalva by the aortic root and bleed into the pericardial cavity and cause acute tamponade. And this is what we had to go on. And in, in retrospect, her jugs were quite distended. And so the diagnosis was made. I should say this predated bedside ultrasonography, which is now a remarkable tool to rule in these problems. So we were in a rural hospital with this conundrum and the patient hung in there. We gave vasopressors and then dropped her pressure while I was organizing a transfer. And so what's left, do a pericardiocentesis. They happen to have the equipment for with an alligator forcep, and we took off some blood without injuring the myocardium and got her vital signs uh, back normalized to get to a cardiac center and get her surgery carried out. So there's my one of my memorable found down cases, uh, this one exemplifying a shock state NYD. Well, the big question is, did she survive? She survived the surgery, much so- to the amazement of everybody. So I think the, the other learning point for me was never give up. That's an incredible case. My understanding was that with these retrograde dissections that dissect into the pericardium to cause tamponade, that it's game over. This that is the game. only way you're going to salvage mm-hmm. any yeah. of these cases who, for the most part, have disastrous outcomes. We know that. Right. Before we go, I'll leave you with the quote of the month. This one's by Henry J. Kaiser, an American industrialist who became known as the father of modern American shipbuilding. I make progress by having people around me who are smarter than I am and listening to them. And I assume that everyone is smarter about something than I am. Well, that wraps it up for this episode on Killer Coma Cases. Until next time, take it easy.